Father, you are faithful. You are perfect. You are the great shepherd. You're the one who is never letting us down. And uh, we can look to you and depend on you, enjoy you, and just um, follow after you. We thank you for that relationship through Jesus Christ. We pray that each one in this room has that, or some that may be watching us online, that they know you, not with head knowledge only, not with a religious experience or a past tradition that they followed, but they really know you, and they woke up this morning excited to walk with you and to get into your word and to obey you and to pass on the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. So we are grateful to you, Father, for all that we have. May you teach us from 1 Corinthians 14 today. Uh, may it stick and not just be um, intellectually um, stimulating, but may it be life-changing because that's what all Scripture is given for. You want us fully equipped to do your work. And so we thank you for it and ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen. We are in chapter 14. Some of you may be saying, finally, we have arrived. Uh, I'm still going to stretch this out a little bit. There's three more messages on uh, 1 Corinthians 14, and we will work through that together. Um, Lord willing, I know it's summer. I know some are scattering these days. There's a lot of things going on. But it's good to see you here, and we ask you to turn to 1 Corinthians 14, recognizing the priority that we've just covered out of chapter 13 is love. This um, is, as I mentioned to you, 12, 13, 14, and the, the book as a whole is a rebuke. The Corinthians were a very immature, selfish, childish church. So as you're going through here, Paul's kind of going boom, 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 boom. This isn't the one that you get warm fuzzies from like you get from some psalms. Some psalms, David's wishing that they be destroyed and wiped out and take out all my enemies. They may not give you warm fuzzies unless you're wishing it upon somebody. But as, as you're interacting with some of the psalms, they're, they're emotional, they're, they're personal, they're intimate, and it kind of pulls you in. 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 don't really do that. All right? This is like going to the woodshed and getting a spanking. How many of you enjoyed that? I'm going to find out who needs help. Oh, really? <laughs> then I'll tell you, you didn't do it very often, did you? No, that's why you enjoyed it. One time, and you were done. But as, as God takes the Corinthians to the woodshed, he's trying to stress to them what he's really after. It isn't performance. And yet all of us live in a performance mode. We're always trying to put on the best front, the best fo foot forward. We don't want to be honest with somebody. We, we want to be careful and, and make sure we're not offending. We want our boss happy. We want whatever it may be. And you make up stories when you get pulled over by the police even. You're trying to make everybody happy and to get along and to not have problems. But God is honest in here. These spiritual gifts he's given to them, they vary from person to person to person. And Paul's going to use that to try to explain some things here. But they vary in their value of edification. Tongues did not. Unless they were interpreted, even that was a very narrow, limited scope of what they could do. Prophecy opened it wide up to the word of God, the message coming from God. And he's going to make the point here that prophecy is superior. And he's telling them to pursue the ex ex exercise of these gifts, but especially the most useful ones, the most beneficial ones. And he doesn't mean go find them or, or ask God to give them to you. He says, let the people that have those gifts be the ones who are dominating on Sunday. 
when you come together as a congregation back in the first century. So as you're looking at this, I, I just, my brain went on to something. I, I don't even know how to pronounce his name correctly, but one of our, the early church fathers out of the fourth century, he said at that point in time, fourth century, he, he made a quote, and John MacArthur quotes it in his commentary, but he said that he didn't even know for sure what all the gifts were and that implied that they were already gone in the fourth century. So I'm not so weird. I haven't coming up with a new thing. They recognized even early on that they had faded out, but we're told in 1 Corinthians 13 that tongues would cease, middle voice on its own. We're told that prophecy and knowledge, whatever knowledge was, were going to be done away. It's passive. So they would be taken out. Tongues would stop on its own whenever it was appropriate that it was no longer useful because it had a specific purpose. And so as you're coming in here, he's emphasizing prophecy, and we're going to look at a few things he says about it. Reminding us in verse 1, command, pursue love. Present tense, be seeking and following after love. This is what he wanted them to do. This was the greatest priority. This is the first mention in the fruit of the Spirit is love. It's a package deal. It's not fruits, plural. It is fruit, singular. It is one fruit, and it's almost like you bite it in one place and you taste love. You bite it in another place, you taste peace and joy and all the things that are brought out there, but they all are in the same fruit. You have one, you have them all. You, have, you don't have one, you don't have the rest of them. So love was dominant. If you had love, what did it tell you according to Galatians 5 where the fruit of the Spirit is talked about? You were walking... By the Spirit. This is the focus here. They were making the gifts about people. They were making them man-centered. They never have been. They were always Spirit-centered. It was always a supernatural, instantaneous ability to do something that was not normal, in spite of how we treat them today. We think anybody can learn how to speak in tongues. That's not of God. Anybody could learn how to prophesy. Not of God. And so we've, we've spent time with that. I don't want to take a lot of time, although I do have another hour and eight minutes, <laughs> according to the clock. So, but he gives them a second command here. Desire earnestly spiritual gifts or spiritual things. And again, this is a present tense. It's an imperative. He's stressing here as he writes to them, they are to be being zealous toward spiritual gifts. Paul's not having a problem with them. It wasn't a problem in the first century. According to uh, 1 Corinthians 1, 7, the Corinthians had all the gifts. Remember what it said there? They weren't lacking in any of the gifts. So they knew who they were. I, I'll make a stab at the guy's name. Christosom, something like that. I knew I said it, I said it wrong. Um, he pointed out that those gifts had faded away by the 4th century. The struggle here was in the first century, they needed the training wheels. They needed the Holy Spirit to supernaturally come alongside to do some things for them that they couldn't do at all. But once the scriptures were completed, they didn't need, and the church was established, they didn't need apostles and prophets. Foundation laid, Ephesians 2.20, they moved on. Once the, the Jews had rejected Christ, and you find the catastrophe that hits in 70 AD, there was no longer a need for the gift of tongues. Or the interpretation of tongues. Because in 1422 that we'll get to eventually, tongues were for a sign to unbelievers. And if you look in the passage in the context, 
you realize it's unbelieving Jews. And so here's two commands he reminds them of. This is what we're after. He puts his bookends, his, his um, parameters around this so you don't go outside of that. This is what you're after. Pursue love and let the gifts function, but especially that you may prophesy. This little word especially used twice in the, this, these 12 verses. It, it says in preference or all the more that you may prophesy. To the greater extent, in order that, it's a, it's a hint of clause. He gives you the purpose. This is what you're after. When you come to church, what are you looking for? Some come for an experience. Some come for friendships. If you're unmarried and you're of the marrying age, you come for? You're looking for someone that God may lead you to. And if they're not there, they must be in the other church. And you move around sometimes. Who's in charge? God. Who are you depending on? God. And who goes to church these days? Everybody. So don't trust just because the guy's sitting here that he's the right guy for you. We're not endorsing them yet. Okay, that was a little side note just to mention in case, you know, that issue may be going on in your life. But when you get married, they take your antenna at the wedding and they break them off. You're, you're no longer kind of zeroing in on people. Oh, there's one. Okay, another sidetrack. Just making sure you guys are awake. The spiritual gifts are the activities of the Holy Spirit. These spiritual matters are those who already possess spiritual gifts. He's not telling them to earnestly desire spiritual gifts and you go around looking for them like you're looking for a husband or a wife. They're there. The Holy Spirit, that's the Holy Spirit's department. Relax. Just show up to church and use the greater gifts. How do we know which ones are greater? 1 Corinthians 12. 27, now you are Christ's body and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healings, then helps, administrations, um, various kinds of tongues. And then he tells you right there, all are not apostles, are they? No. All are not prophets, are they? No. All are not teachers, are they? No, all are not workers of miracles, and he just works down the list. So people take these verses, and they get it all twisted up because of what they want rather than what God wants. He'll take care of the gift giving. You don't even have to worry about Christmas. Just checking to see if you're awake. Wouldn't that be nice? You didn't have to worry about getting just the right thing or how much to spend. We put a, we put a limit on ours. It's grown over the years, but we put a, a limit, and we pick one name, supposedly. Our children and family violate that drastically, like 10 times as much as the limit. And then they want to give gifts to everybody because they like giving gifts. Yep, their money. So we let it go. But make sure the one person that you got a name for. But if you could just let that go, you come to Christmas, and you could just focus on Christ. You don't have to focus on all the decorations and all of the gift giving and, and all of the parties and all the things that are out there, making sure you're, you're color coordinated with the right dress because it's all about Christ. This is what he's trying to do here with the church. Let's get back to what really is important. You've, you've gotten sidetracked into all this stuff. It's love. These spiritual training wheels were good for you. They needed to happen. But when it comes to Sunday, you need to yield the floor to the work of the Holy Spirit in those that he has already gifted. Does that make sense? Don't rush in there and say, I've got to speak in tongues today. I can't, I can't hold it back. 
I, I got to just demonstrate. Why? Are there unbelievers there? Specifically unbelieving Jews? As you go in and look at this, you recognize some things that were not being practiced today at all. And so he points out the choices. And again, the idea here is especially that you may prophesy, all the more rather in preference, in order that you may prophesy and what revelation could, would, um, what revelation would God have brought to them at that day? Let's say you elevate prophecy where it belongs. They're bringing you some kind of revelation that's been given by God to that prophet. What do you, what's the message that God gives to the Corinthians? Grow up, okay, that'd be a really succinct and obvious one that would fit in with this. I have a book for you. Don't, don't run away without it, Ivan. What else? What would the message be? See, what do you come to church for? Why do some people attend one or two weeks and then they leave? Because they, they didn't get fed. Maybe that would be it. So then I ask them, well, did you prepare the food before you got here? Because the food is sitting in front of you already. But what are other things? I didn't get entertained. I didn't feel the Holy, the Holy Spirit working. I didn't, I didn't, I didn't, I didn't. Why do we go to church? What's the priority? What is love? Is love all about I? Nope. They've already got the wrong perspective. So when they leave this church and they go visit the next one and the next one and the next one, are they going to find what they're looking for? No. Because they're taking their problem with them. It's not about what you get out of the service. It's about love. It's about what you give to other people. How you lay down your life sacrificially, devoting yourself to others. When you show up, Bev and I are going to take a little trip here in a, in a few weeks. If, when we go out and God allows us to visit churches, we go there to minister. Now, some of them may not appreciate it, or maybe the pastor may be threatened. So we'll see if it's a little bitty church or a big church. It depends who we're with and where we're at. But we, we go in there. We're looking for people. If we see somebody sitting or standing by themselves alone, we go talk to them. We go find out what their needs are. That's what you guys all do, right? You don't have cliques. You don't have favorites. You don't come here to do business. You come here to serve. And the greatest way of serving is to lay down my life for somebody and find out what their needs are. And it might even be, and it's been in sometimes in some churches, we'll find out needs. And I remember sitting with one guy long after the service was over and the room was almost cleared and we're sitting there praying in the auditorium. It wasn't my church. What difference does it make? It was a fellow believer who had a need. And so as you come on Sundays, that's the routine. Guess what? You'll never be if you come to church with a desire to serve disappointed. You'll never be dissatisfied. You'll come in, you'll interact, you'll build up other people because that's what you're trying to do is edify, and you'll walk out and think, that was the greatest Sunday ever because you're in the middle of God's will. You're being used by him. Instead of saying, well, I didn't like the music or I wasn't entertained or I didn't feel worshipful. What is that anyway? I, when I first came here, and it wasn't very um, early or very far into my time, I made the statement on a Sunday morning that we're not here to worship. <laughs> I got this retired pastor that happened to be visiting that day. He called me aside. He, wanted to take, he took me back into my office and started rebuking me. And then I finally explained to him because he was brand new. He didn't understand. I said, now, let me explain to you what I mean by that. You're not coming here to worship because you're already worshiping. 
You worship 24 hours a day, seven days a week. That's just a lifestyle. So why would I gather with a bunch of other people? Could call it corporate worship. We, we use that term, but that's not what the Bible tells you to do. What's he doing here in 1 Corinthians? When you come together, each has a, and he starts naming these things that they were sharing with each other. But their problem was they were being selfish. Some were coming drunk, maybe even getting drunk at church, not sharing with other people. You know how to not get drunk? Don't drink hard liquor. Don't drink spiked wine. They add alcohol to wine today, in case you haven't figured that out. It's not natural. It's really hard. Usually your bladder goes before your brain when it comes to wine. But you can get there. You can get drunk. But if you take that bottle of whatever it is and you spread it out 20 ways, you're not going to get drunk. And this is kind of what he was trying to get a point across to them. They could share what they had, benefit a whole bunch of other people. They were coming and eating, and others, others were going hungry. This is the Corinthian church. These are the ones being rebuked in here, and it's why you sometimes struggle with my preaching. I preach what's on the page. I don't try to make you feel good. That's between you and God. You ought to feel great because this page will reveal that you're in the center of God's will. Yes, I'm doing well. And you ought to feel great because you're serving those around you. You're finding out their needs and and you're right in the center of God's will. You ought to feel great because God is pleased with you. You're walking by the Spirit. You're not sinning. Sin corrodes. Sin leads to death. I keep trying to teach that and stress that. I have very few days left. Don't sin but it it feels good. It's a big lie. It bites. Every sin bites. We have to learn how to walk by the Spirit, not by the flesh. And he labels all that in Galatians 5, 19 to 21. But he's trying to stress here, when they're prophesying, getting back to my point, they're sharing a message with that church that they need on that Sunday. It's God talking. It's not some man making up something he wants to make people feel good with. And I suspect with this church that they didn't feel very good. They were in the woodshed not one time, over and over and over, and they were learning nothing. They do like one of my brothers did. You find a way to get a really narrow pillow in the back of your pants, or even better yet, a book, but Dad usually could spot the book. He didn't always spot the pillow. So when you got a spanking, you go, hmm, that didn't hurt. Then once in a while, in your foolishness, you would tell your dad that. That didn't hurt. He made sure that never happened again. But God knows. He knows when there's a pillow or a book or whatever you're trying to do. When he disciplines, you'll feel it. Because he's drawing us back to a right relationship. He's weaning us away from those things that destroy us. That we think, well, that little bit of sin can't hurt. It does. Love will not tolerate sin. The moment I bring sin in, I kick the spirit out, or at least push him over into the corner. You understand? That's what Galatians 5 is teaching. You either walk by the spirit, or you walk by the flesh. And you grieve him. You quench the work he's trying to do. So as he's bringing this out, the people prophesying were going to be sharing messages that they were not too excited about. They're going to be God-focused. Now, when it came to tongues, how did tongues make you feel in the church? You're the one up there speaking, whatever it was that they were doing. And we'll explain some of that a little bit. How do you feel? 
great. I'm up front. I'm doing my thing. Everybody recognizes me as being a great tongue speaker. Boy, when you get up there, it really comes off well. Is that the spirit? No. It's the same spirit working through every single person. It shouldn't come off anything. But it's exactly what was going on and exactly what people wanted. And then if you're out in the audience, when they spoke in tongues on the day of Pentecost and asked two, Acts 2, what did they say? They weren't witnessing. Verse 11, we hear them in our own tongue speaking of the mighty deeds of God. People keep saying, well, I want to learn tongues so I can go evangelize a tribe that I don't know their language. That's not what tongues are for. Tongues are a sign. They're not an, a, a message. They're not an instruction. They're not like prophesying where they brought a revelation to the people. This was a sign that to get your attention. That's all it was for. So in Acts 10, Acts 19, that's what it was used for in the book of Acts. It was not common. It was not to be dominant, but the Corinthians had twisted. And part of the reason was they spoke ecstatic languages in tongues, I mean with, with tongues, in Corinth in their false religions. It was already dominant in the, in the day. What the Corinthians were allowing to do is for that to come into their church and start becoming man-centered, man-driven, and the Holy Spirit had nothing to do with it. Now, here's a possibility. I'm going to throw this out. Uh, don't grab onto it, but kind of check it out. When you come in here and you see um, the term tongue, singular, like in verse 2, for one who speaks in a tongue, and then you see it again singular in verse 4, one who speaks in a tongue, the implication may be, and this is where you want to check it out, some teach that they think those are referring to counterfeit tongues. And if you take note and look at where it shows up in verse 5 the first time, twice, and I, my interlinear is wrong, that's just a typo error, but it says, I wish that you all spoke in tongues, plural. And then he says a little further down, greater is one who prophesies than the one who speaks in tongues, plural. That's where I made a mistake, a typo. Then he says in verse 6, if I come to you speaking in tongues. So the possibility here is there is the God-given spiritual gift, instantaneous, supernatural, that it comes at a moment and bam, there it is. You don't learn it, you just do it. It comes from the Holy Spirit. He gifted you, the believer, with that ability. But then there were some, he says in verse 2, who speak in a tongue. They're, they're speaking in a language of some sort, whatever it may be. But look how it stands out here. He does not speak to men with verse 2, but to a God, literally in the Greek. He's not talking to people. Who did they talk to in the book of Acts in chapter 2? people and they heard here he says they don't no one understands this tongue singular but in spirit he speaks mysteries on the day of pentecost that wasn't the problem they recognized that this was understandable you go to chapter 10 they heard it and recognize it as understandable 19 leaves it out. You don't know what the reaction is. It's a narrow thing there. But he's pointing out to them that when you speak in a tongue, potentially a counterfeit, like they had all around them in Corinth, you're not speaking to men, which is what tongues are for, to be a sign, but to a God. And he's not talking about that God in heaven understands it. He said it's some kind of a non, that only a God can understand. Maybe I could put it that way. And, and so it's beyond the ability of men, which is beyond the purpose of tongues. 
Take it with a grain of salt. Go check it out. But follow it through here because it's going to keep going. These people did not understand. They, in, in spirit, not in his spirit, that's implied there, but in spirit, he speaks mysteries. And this is where the struggle is. In this inner man, in his self, in his ego, he does not understand it. There are secrets only for the initiated. That's what a mystery was. And apparently no native speaker was present because they didn't understand. And no supernatural enablement was necessary to interpret because it wasn't God working through the Holy Spirit in that individual. Just hang on to that a little bit, and you're going to watch as it goes down through here. He's trying to bring out these problems to them. Is it secret or is it significant? Why is it given? He says, because here in verse 2, one who speaks in a tongue. He's given you a cause or a reason to understand it. No one perceives the meaning, and yet in Acts 2.6 and Acts 10.46, they understood. And they're struggling with this whole thing. And then he goes on to say, in contrast in verse 3, but one who prophesies speaks to men. That implying they do understand. It is not a mystery to them. And as you walk through this, he speaks in a special way to understand. That um, communicating a message. So he says three ways that they understand it. To edification, the idea of building up, spiritual strengthening in the life. Pers- persuasion, uh, and again, this is the prophet, not the tongue speaker. Persuasion is exhortation, this earnest supplication. They're kind of persuading them and directing them. So you get the idea when this prophet stood up, he may have been strengthening them spiritually. Hang in there. God is going to take care of your needs. You, you don't need to worry about man. Man can't do anything to you permanently. Exhortation, persuading them with earnest supplication. Here's what you need to do. And they should have been out there in the early church taking notes. And why is that? They didn't have a Bible sitting in front of them. They couldn't even go back and refer to what actually what had been recorded. How do you take notes in the first century? A rock and a chisel? Piece of papyrus? with some kind of ink. I mean, this wasn't a simple thing to do. You realize when you go back thousands of years of history, they memorized. But God knew they needed more because he wrote it down and eventually gave it to them as Paul recorded it. But this edification of building up, this exhortation of earnest supplication, pleading with them, and then here comes the nice part that everybody looks for, consolation. Gentle encouragement, this tender comfort that would come along. Those were the ideas of what the prophets were giving the church. So some of it stung. Some of it was hard. I don't don't want that. I don't want that. So the other prophet spoke up and said, yep, he's a true prophet. Yep, this is coming from from God. We're going to get into that in chapter 14. They verified it was true. Then what did you do with it? God ever told you something that you rejected? We have our sins of ignorance, sins of we don't know, and sometimes we don't know because we don't care. We never bothered to find out. There's a lot of that because we don't read our Bibles. But when, when the ones that are more defiant, remember David said, keep me from presumptuous sins? The ones that I know better, like killing Uriah and, and having a, a sexual relationship with Bathsheba, he knew that. Took him nine months for Nathan to get his attention bad. But if you look at 1 Samuel, you'll realize that's the peak of his life. Chapter 12, from there on, everything's downhill, and it's bad for David. Sin destroyed his family, his sin. 
and the consequences of it. We don't play around with that. But here's the prophet giving them messages that maybe they didn't want to hear. Do I ever do that to you? Shake your heads. Okay, then shake your heads. But don't sit there doing nothing. You come here to get into the Word. You have prepared yourself. You've kind of like, like you're taking down the, the monster tree in the forest. Back in the day when they had to chop them down, it'd take them a day or two to even bring the tree down. And what did they do first? They made a bed for the, for the tree to land in. Why? So it didn't break because it was worth too much money. They wanted the whole tree when it came down. They wanted to pick where it was going to get sawed up for the proper use. What happened to all those little trees? Crushed, destroyed. Typically, they were worthless and they were left out in the woods. <gasps> you can't do that today. You can't even go in and cut them down after they burned. Man is worshiping Mother Earth. Man is environmentally focused, not godly focused. And so they're, they're really distorted on this thing. See, the light came on. Now you guys are, you can understand me. But he's trying to bring out here in verse 4. The light went off. <laughs> Though it's just a little, what do we call it, ray of? Yeah, it's an idea. It came into your head and gone. You probably don't even remember what it was because I distracted you. But in verse 4, he moves on with this whole picture here, and he says, one who speaks in a tongue, which one is that, singular or plural? Singular. So I have to ask myself, why is it being singular here? Edifies himself. That's kind of weird. Shouldn't a prophet edify himself when he prophesies? Shouldn't he be impressed with what God has given him to him as a message? It goes into his brain first, and then it goes out his mouth. And it's almost like some of the times when God gave messages to prophets in the Old Testament, they would go, what? They'd almost start questioning God. You sure you want me to say that? Or worse yet, they would warn God, because he needed to be warned he didn't understand, that if I share this with the king, he's going to do bad things to me. God goes, oh, I never thought about that. Okay, you can, you can skip that one. No. The prophets are prophesying and understanding it through their own minds and then sharing it with the people. And so here you have this whole situation. When the tongue, when a person speaks in a tongue, which may be a counterfeit, he only edifies himself. So how, how is that? If, if you're looking at this and it's, he speaks mysteries, but in his spirit, he speaks mysteries. And, and so you're, you're trying to kind of look at this and say, well, then what is he saying here? How can he even edify himself? Where's the edification come from? How is he being built up, flesh or spirit? Flesh. And that's the whole reason why they're being rebuked. You've got this upside down. You are distorting it. You are dominating your services with tongues, and people go out of there emaciated, starving for revelation from God because they got nothing. You ever try to have water for dinner? You can fill your stomach if you drink enough, but it doesn't satisfy. And water's a good thing, but it doesn't, it doesn't satisfy. This is what's kind of going on with the church here. And so Paul says to them as he's walking through here, but the one who prophesies edifies a church. Again, I don't know, I'm not sure why they do some of what they do in here, but this is not a definite article. He's not edifying the church, universal. He's edifying a local church because that's who's hearing it. That, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward, but sometimes people misunderstand, so they translate it different. But he, he prophesies, he edifies, he builds up a given local church with the revelation that came from God. 
That's a good thing. When you read your Bible, you should be edified, shouldn't you? You ever read your Bible and feel it's a mystery? What do you do about it? You understand pastors read their Bibles and I come across mysteries every single week? And it's not really a mystery because that's a secret that, that only God can reveal. But I come across things every single week that I didn't know. This was amazing, even to go through some of this this time. To take the hours to look at it and let it open up to me and spread it out on the page and let it speak to me. I learn. I don't know everything. Close. <laughs> Not close. Just kidding. God alone knows everything. Some people think you're going to go to heaven someday from the end of chapter 13 of Corinthians, and then we're going to know everything. We'll know fully as we're fully known. You don't understand. And I don't have time because my, the clock's kind of, I have to turn that a little bit to get me back to the right time. We're not going to know everything. We're going to learn throughout eternity and 10,000, 10 million years because time will still be there. It's not going away in spite of what some of the songs say. Day and night, forever and ever. The sun, the moon, the stars, the planet Earth, it'll be there. But 10 million years from now, what will we be doing? Ooing and eyeing over God. Blown away. Taking in more information about him in a perfect body where your brain isn't all fuzzy anymore. And Paul says to them as he moves on, secret or significant, he wants it significant. Selfish or selfless, he wants it selfless. That's what love does. And he gets number three, self or saints. And Paul says to them, "Ah, now I wish, and this idea carries here, I am willing, it's a present tense, I'm open to the idea but it's not a reality. But he says, I'm just open to it. Let me give you a hypothetical here. I wish that you all spoke in tongues. What's Paul saying there? It's hypothetical because they don't. The Holy Spirit told him in chapter 12, and Paul revealed that. He doesn't give it to everybody. But he's saying, I kind of wish that because then what would be the case? Who, Who gave him the tongues? The Holy Spirit gave him the tongues. And what would they learn if they all spoke in tongues? They may learn nothing because that isn't what the purpose of it, but unbelieving Jews may have even a greater opportunity to see the sign and to turn to Christ because that's what it's for in 1422. It's a sign. It's a marker along the way for the Jews. Take notice, take notice, sharp turn ahead, and the Jews all went, nah. And what happened to them? They're wiped out. When they took out Jerusalem this time, they took out everything. Uh, uh, they guess at 1.1 million people. I don't know where they come up with that number, but they make a guess. That's how many people were killed. They wiped out the temple. They, they even tore it all down. So, and again, not one stone left upon another. Is that prophesy, or prophecy fulfilled in the first century, or is that coming with the Antichrist because the temple is going to be rebuilt? You have to let, don't let yourself get into a box. I'm not an anti-study Bible. There's actually some good stuff in there. Basic things that almost come right out of the text. But when you get locked onto your theology that you've been taught, you don't open your eyes to see what the Bible actually says. You won't allow this to say that there is a God or a church. That can't be. Because my Bible says, well, your English translation says that. 
And why they're motivated to go that route, I don't know. But you need to be recognizing the scriptures are what determine my theology. They're never going to tell you that Jesus Christ is not God. They're never going to tell you there's another way to get to heaven besides the gospel. They're they're not going to violate those basic truths, but they also aren't going to get into the weeds with some stuff that's being taught today that doesn't hold up in Scripture. That's why you read your Bible. That's why you study to be diligent to get into it for yourself. You're responsible. You're going to stand before God someday and say, my pastor never covered that. Is that how you're going to answer I never chose to read that. I never chose to learn that. I told you from the beginning, the only reason I ever became a pastor was because I wanted to learn the Bible. And I told him my first year in Bible college, clear back in the beginning, I'm not going to be a pastor. They have to tell jokes. They have to be able to play golf. And they have to put up with people. And I'm not good at any one of those. You know how often, when's the last time I played golf with one of you? See, I'm telling the truth. I don't bend golf clubs and throw them in the, in the lakes like I saw some pastors do. But, but it's, and I, that's not the fruit of the Spirit, by the way, just in case you didn't notice. <laughs> I should have taken pictures showed it to their wives. I could have gotten a lot of money for that. Or blackmail for whatever I wanted. But, but the, the, the struggle here is the recognition that God puts us where he wants us. God is the one who's trying to build into us, and he's trying to recognize, and he and brings up this whole idea of tongues. He said, I wish you all spoke in tongues. I wish you all had the supernatural ability to speak languages instantaneously that were previously unknown. This would be useful to unbelieving Jews. Could have been what he was getting at. But even more, he tries to bring out here in the verse, You see that? But even more, there's your malon, again, that rather in preference or all the more, to a greater extent, he says here, the one who prophesies, I'm sorry, that you would prophesy, and greater is the one, more important, it's a comparative, is the one who prophesies and the one who speaks in in tongues. Again, that's the one I had to correct. So he's still going back. Spiritual gift used, used by the Holy Spirit, given to an individual, is not comparable to the one who prophesies. Unless he interprets so that the church may receive edifying. All right? So you got the, the, the tongue speaker has to have a twofold idea. Why do you need an interpretation? What did some of them say on the day of Pentecost when they, when they heard the tongue speaking? Many were amazed. Others said they must be drunk. And Peter goes on to say it's only the third hour of the day, 9 o'clock in the morning for the, for the Jews. Because nobody gets drunk by 9 o'clock in the morning. You can't drink enough that fast. What they should have, they, they were already told not to take hard drink in the Old Testament. But he's trying to bring out this aspect here that it's far better to speak in tongues. And, and so the interpretation can help with some of that. You're still only going to get a basic message. You're not going to get what comes through the prophets. And he's going to explain what, the, what comes through them in verse 6 here. But now, brethren, at this time, if I come to you speaking in tongues, third class condition, hypothetical, if I could come to you speaking in tongues, what shall I profit you unless I speak to you either by way of revelation, knowledge, prophecy, or teaching? 
He names four things there. He's going further than he did earlier when he brought out what tongue speakers were going to do or um, prophesying was going to do for them. Edification, exhortation, consolation, verse 3. Now he says, here's what I'm really after. If the tongues can be used for the purpose of revelation, this is trying to bring out unveiled truth, disclosed and manifested, or knowledge, form of gnosko, practical truth, understanding in an experiential way, or prophecy, now we move into future truth, predictions, foretelling, and then he goes into teaching, sound truth, and basic instruction or foretelling. He said, that's what I'm after with the church. This is what I want to be motivated by. How does Paul know those are most important? God's telling him, that's the first one. That's what we go by when we read our Bibles. What's the other one? What was Paul? What gift did he have? He was an apostle. He was a prophet. He acted as a teacher. If you go to Acts 13, when he said they're setting outside people, you see some things. And you go, so it looks like Paul had multiple gifts. Does God say you can't? Nope. Big debate over that. No, you only get one gift. You're stuck. If you're a tongue speaker, you're ceasing. You, they're going to walk in instead of these little plaques on the seats telling you where to sit. It said tongue, speaker, uh, tongue speakers back here, back row, and then and, and you have a sign in front of them that says, keep silent. Is that what you want? You could take in, but you can't give out. No. And so th- the implication is that maybe even some with the gift of tongues could even interpret, which he's kind of pointing out here, so there's two gifts. And then maybe they had other gifts as well. You see, he's giving them what they need. When you put training wheels on your child's bike, you ever, you ever try to put the wrong size on? Two things happen. If they're too big, what happens? Child never falls over and never goes anywhere. Okay, so you don't want them too big. We've, we put them on before and put the bike up and you go, whoa, tire's just sitting there spinning. If you put them on too small, what happens? They fall over too many times and you're scaring the living daylights out of them and they're never going to learn how to ride a bike. Now, if you're my dad, training wheels were illegal. Get on, let's go. Did I do that to you guys? No. Okay. I don't think we had many training wheels, though, so you must have learned on your own. Push off the curb and kind of crashed and whatever. But, but the, the need here is he's, he's working with them. He's trying to bring them along and give them just the right balance to make them dependent on him, not on the gifts. They're tools. And here I specify one thing. You get this idea in your mind that the gifts went on 24 hours a day, seven days a week, month after month after month. And yet when you look at the scriptures, what's he telling them to do? Limit prophesying. Limit tongue. When they came together, they had various things to contribute. And when did they share the gifts? Looks like on Sunday morning, Sunday evening. When they came together, maybe they came together on a Wednesday night and you would see them. But it was a corporate thing. It wasn't something you went around doing on the outside. It was for the body. It was to serve the body. And so the gifts were probably far more infrequent than we want to admit today. They weren't a common practice. They didn't get hung up. They, they weren't so steady on it that they, they never had them taken off their bike to learn without the training wheels. There were many times they had to learn. And so that was the whole idea. They were growing in faith. They were growing in giving. They were growing in their knowledge. They were growing in trusting the scriptures that Paul was writing and Peter was writing and John was writing. And pretty soon he was going to take the training wheels off. 
and they were going to have all they needed to do what they were supposed to do. And then they wouldn't be looking around with someone with the gift of faith, whatever that was, or the gift of giving, whatever that was. Like the writer in the fourth century admitted. They're already gone, and we don't even know what a lot of those gifts did. They weren't necessary because everybody in the congregation used to step up, and a need came up, and when you love somebody, you do whatever they need. We had a crash out here. I've shared it many times, but just for illustration, out front here while we were building this building, it literally ripped the, the sliding door off the car. One of the children's laying out on the ground. The other one's bleeding pretty good, in, still in the seatbelt inside the car. So I, I ran up to it, and a few of others ran up to it, and I said, I'm not a medic. I'm not touching. I don't have the gift of medicking. And I, now maybe I could give them their last rites, but I'm not sure they're dead yet. But I'm not touching them because they're unclean. You said, I could have started making all kinds of excuses. Well, we helped, and one of the legs in the, on one of the children went in multiple directions. So we knew when they woke up, they were out. When they woke up, not going to be a happy time. And everything they did, kind of like our dog when the leg was broken, everything they did from that point on only caused excruciating pain, but they didn't like the situation, so they kept moving. And we had to contain the dog to fix the leg, and we had to hold him until he started waking up to keep him from moving his leg and doing more damage to it. And when the EMT came up many, many years ago, and um, he basically told me, get out of the way, and, uh, and implied I didn't know what I was doing, and took over. I said nothing. I just moved out of the way. But this is what's happening in the church. We think somebody has that gift, and I don't believe you do. So you have to figure out if I'm right or wrong. And then we say, I'm not equipped. I'm not willing to love you. I'm not willing to sacrificially devote myself to you. I barely have enough to eat now. I'm not going to give you half of what's in my pot on the stove because I might starve. Is that love? Nope. Is that what Jesus did on the cross? He said, I think I'll die halfway. That way I keep half of my life and I don't suffer as much. And and you guys can figure out if a half death is going to be worth anything to you. That's not what love does. That's not what's going on in the church. But today we're waiting for the people to show up, the the medic or whoever it may be, because they're equipped. They're specially designed. They learn to do this kind of thing. And meanwhile, we, watch, we lay, or stand there watching them writhe in their own pain and their blood and, and whatever might happen to them. We weren't even sure if he was alive. You had to go up and make sure if he even needed to have artificial um, perspiration. You know, that's, that's what comes to my mind, respiration. But trying to help him, and you're going in there and assessing it, and it's like, well, you may get sued. What, is, what does love say? That's not even entering my mind at the moment. I'm not trying to do something stupid or harmful to them, but I'm going to do what they need to keep to help them. And I'll pay the price later, whatever the price may be. Love will pay anything. Did you see that in 1 Corinthians 13? Endures all things, believes all things, hopes all things. What was the other one I left out? I did leave one out. Bears all things. Ah, there it is. This is what love is. I keep trying to stress, this summer of love is waking me up to really understand what God's asking out of me. He's basically saying to me, die for me. And he says that in many ways. Carry your cross. 
I don't want to die. I don't want to suffer. I don't want to share the gospel with somebody, which is kind of how the tongue speaking would have gone to the unbelieving Jew, because they may turn on me. They may turn me in. I don't know what's holding us back, but love doesn't hold back. So I got to start back at the beginning. Uh, Hopefully you don't need training wheels again in a different way, but you start back on your knees before God and you confess, I am a very selfish person. It's where I'm at right now. Maybe I wasn't there a year ago, but I am now. And I need you, God, to help me. I'm asking you to forgive me for my selfishness, for my sinfulness of only worrying about me and get me back on track with what your word teaches. The example your son set, the requirements you've given right here with the first um, verse giving you a command, pursue love. He said it in chapter 12. He left that way as he explained love in 13. But he's, but he's trying to bring out this whole need here. And he gives you an example, an illustration in verse 7. Yet even lifeless things, these inanimate objects, such as a flute, which was kind of like a pipe, it was a wind instrument, or a harp, which was a stringed instrument, if they're in producing a sound, they're, they're giving out some kind of sound here, not language, but sound, phoneme. If they do not produce a distinction... And it says here, it's an on, it's a third class condition. It's possible that they do not produce, they don't give out a distinction, a, a difference in the tones, in these musical sounds. How will it be known what is played on the flute? If you hear on the radio, and you typically you'll hear a song, and you go, oh, that's my favorite. How do you know? Because you see the face on your, on your whatever, your iPad or whatever it is that says, oh, that's who's singing. Oh, I know what song they sing. They only sing one song. You know it because you're listening to the music. And you can do that, name that tune. You might be able to say, bum, 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 bum. And you go, I know what that is. Because there's distinction in the tones. I'm picking up on it. You knew what song it was. I didn't. I need an interpretation. Mr. Sandman. Oh, I knew that song. That, that goes back. But I didn't know I was just doing that. So, but these, these lifeless things, he goes, they don't go around just being kind of haphazard and throwing out stuff. Bum, 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 bum. You don't know that song. Bum, 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 bum. It's worthless. It's not my favorite. It's not, I'm going to change the channel. I'm going to get to something I like. But he says if these lifeless things, flute or harp, are producing a sound, and if they don't produce a distinction, how will it be known? Gnosko, how would you experientially pick up the fact that it's, um, what is played on the flute or played on the harp is recognizable? You won't. That's pretty straightforward. You could save a lot of money. In fact, you could become a star if you just say monotone. There are some of those on, on TV. I think one kid from Korea was that way. Barbarian. You could become famous if you could have enough money to start out to get on the thing so people would hear you. And they go, what is that? Have you heard Jack in his monotone? It is excellent. He gets the beat just right, but he never changes the musical tone. Boom, 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 boom. You're going to go buy my records? My first song is my favorite, but the second one's even better. Boom, 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 boom. 
It's, it's worthless. This is what tongues was doing in the church. They couldn't distinguish what was going on. But the prophet comes in and all of a sudden he's singing, taking up octaves of territory, expressing things with words that were understandable, that touched the heart to change the heart, not just to emotionally impress you, but to draw you in and realize God's telling me, love one another. Do I need a prophet to say that again? But he goes on. He says in verse 8, if, another third-class condition, it's possible that the bugle, this military trumpet, produces an indistinct sound. So he mixes up or gives you just the monotone, so you're not going to know when to get up. You're not going to know when to charge. You're not going to know when to retreat. What other ones do they give you? Military people. I don't know what that is, but, they're, okay, they're, they're giving you directions. But you're not going to know because he says there, if it produces this uncertain sound, who will prepare himself? Who's going to put himself in readiness and get ready for the battle or the war? Nobody. They have no idea what you're telling them to do. And so he closes off with this part as I um, look at my sideways clock. He says in verse 9, so also you. Unless you, and it's another third class condition, but it's kind of hidden there. Utter by the tongue, is it possible? Could you do this? Might you do this? Utter by the tongue, speech that is clear, well-marked, intelligible. How will it be known what is spoken? For you will be speaking into the air, talking to the wind. Which, one, which gift is he emphasizing? Get the ones to prophesy. Two, at the most three. We're going to see that going on in the chapter. He's not trying to inundate them with an hour-long message like you get from me. How long do they speak? At least an hour. So I have to say that. How long did people gather for? If you've gone on the mission field, you find out people travel sometimes. We, we had a, a conference, a pastor's conference, and I talked to one guy, and he went through in the Philippines about five or six methods of transportation. He had traveled for two days to get to the conference. Do you think he wanted a one-hour message? No. Big reason he came was because he was one of the ones that had lost his Bible. He knew they were handing out Bibles to pastors there. But he put out the effort. And he told me, he went through all these different things. I said, well, how much does that cost? Well, I paid this much for this and this much for this. And then I got this and this and this. Came from outskirts. Hungry. Hungry to learn. So he could turn around and go back home and teach it. And I felt bad. I felt unprepared for what, what, where they were really at. But I wanted speech that was clear. I wanted them to understand what was being shared with them. They, they speak. The Filipinos have Tagalog, and, and there's another one too. They have um, Spanish and English. When they would bring their speaker up at the pastor's conference, this guy would change from Spanish to English to Tagalog to English to Spanish, Tagalog. I mean, the whole thing. I'm going, okay, I got that. Now I need an interpreter. I need an interpreter. I, I have a little bit of Spanish. I can tell he's saying and, or. But, but, but then he'd come back to English. Okay, now I got it. And his topic, mine was a heavy one that they gave me, which is what I regret. I almost wish I had defied them and taught what I thought they really needed to learn. And I kind of tweaked it to make that happen. I focused on observation, interpretation, application as I worked with what the topic they gave me. The guy that spoke the three languages, guess what he taught on? Marriage. 
very practical. The guys are just eating it up. You men need to go home and love your wives and all this stuff. And I'm going, hey, how come, how come you got the easy stuff and you, you assign me this thing that is hard to explain, let alone for them to walk away with in English only? Because I can't say it with the phrases that they would use in their language. But this is what he wants. Utter it by a tongue in speech that is clear. Make sure that they grasp it. And so in the practices here with verse 10, there are perhaps, Paul didn't know. He didn't have a book that told him there are 287 languages in the world and 4,000 dialects. He just goes, there are perhaps a great many kinds of languages. And literally here, it's the word sounds. They all sound different, but they all communicate meaning if it's really a language that's known on planet Earth. And he goes, there's all kinds of them here. That, that's the variety. If then, in verse 11, I do not know the meaning of the sound, even though they put the word language there, I shall be to the one who speaks a barbarian, and the one who speaks will be a barbarian to me. That's more like it was when we went down to Mexico, and you'd get around some people there um, that either spoke just Mexican or just Spanish, or they spoke the Indian language, which was Mixteco, which was totally unique in itself. And I looked at him and I thought, barbarian. And then I tried to answer them and they looked at me and thought, barbarian. <laughs> and then we go find an interpreter. We get somebody that we could have a conversation, but it had to be three way. Then you could learn something. That is useful, but what he's after here, he says, if I don't know it, we can't communicate with each other. We can't help each other. And so in verse 12, so also you, since you are zealous, of spiritual gifts. Remember that idea way, way back in the beginning here? Um, the zeal is the one desiring earnestly. Since you desire earnestly spiritual gifts, since you are um, enthusiastic about them, you're really promoting them, but since you are there, he says, seek to abound for the edification of the church. Spiritual gifts are not the problem. Speaking in tongues is not the problem. Put them back in the right order and how they're useful. Let the Holy Spirit direct your assembly so that he draws you into the truth and what's needed in the body that day. And the prophets would have changed. It would, we would love it if we could have a video of one service in the first century and what it was like when they did it right. And I think it would blow you away. And you see people come in that were poor with mixed with people that were rich. You see slaves that had to work all day show up at night, like Eutychus who fell out the window because he had had a full 10 or 12-hour day, and then he wanted to learn, and so he came to listen to Paul. But he was exhausted. And they were mixing. That's why James says when the rich man comes in and the poor man comes in, it, the Christianity, becoming believers, becoming part of the true church of God, mixed everybody, mixed them politically. You came from a past where you were evil and, and mean, and God had taken that away, made you a new creature in Christ Jesus. Or you came from a past where you were one of those servants, and you spit in the soup on a regular basis because you couldn't do anything more concrete to pay them back. And he brought them in, and he caused them to love one another. You ever have that here? Don't answer. But have you ever run into somebody here? The first thing they walk in the door, you go, you thought, if you're honest, if God broadcast it, I hope they don't stay. Good, I'm hearing the right responses. I had a friend I was going to bring over here, 
his beard down to his belly. Funny guy. Um, anyway, I've known him for a long time. Same birthday as mine, 10 years younger in the youth group that I was a youth pastor of. But I was going to bring him over and dress him up in some junky old clothes and sit him out front before church on a Sunday morning. And I explained to a couple of people, I said, wouldn't work. You know why? Because you're already doing it now without people looking like that. And I want them to smell bad too. Go crawl in a couple dumpsters before you show up. <laughs> and he would do it. There's too much love here. There's too many of you who care about other people that you wouldn't walk over him. You wouldn't ignore him. You would go talk to him. You would get a name. You would figure out what his needs are, where he's from, and try to help him. Now, we're not talking about enabling. You may find out that he's a lazy bum. And so you're going to offer him food by coming over to your house and helping you do a project. It won't work. Don't let him eat. We're not talking about enabling what's going on in the world today, but you couldn't ignore that person any more than Jesus Christ ignored us. You know what we smelled like to him? You know what sin smells like? We stunk. Repulsive as can be. And yet, who do you make a friend out of? Tax gatherers and sinners. That's what he wants us to do as we go out. This is what love's all about. And it works only when the church comes together and genuinely loves one another, builds up one another, gets you prepared to go back out. So this morning, you are sinning, and I'll close with this. You are sinning if you don't go find somebody you don't know because in essence, you're walking over them and you don't care. Don't go to your friends. If somebody comes in, I got to tell, okay, give me five minutes. Go do the mission first. There better not be one person in this room that you don't know by name. And if you can't find somebody, then next step, ask them for a prayer request for the week. And then the loving person follows that up. They pray, and then they check with them next week. I need to close off in spite of the clock that gives me lots of time. Paul is trying to be practical, but he's also reproving them, not to damage them, not to hurt them. He, he's not looking for the pillow or the book behind the seat. So, he, you know, when he gives them the rebuke, it stings, and he wants them to move on and grow up. And we're going to see more of that as we process through here. So let's grow up a little bit today. Let's figure out where we're letting down the church. We're letting down the Holy Spirit who's prompting us. And let's go make a difference in those around us. Father, we are grateful to you. We have one more song to sing, and then we're set free to serve you, to go out into a world, onto a mission field, to preach the gospel, to make disciples that it's going to cost us. Some are going to spit in our face, even in Lapine. Some are going to hate us. Some are going to want to fire us from jobs because we won't go along with them. But that one or two, now and then, just enough. You don't give us, you might give us triplets even, quadruplets. You never give us 30 or 40 at a time. And the same thing in the spiritual life. You'll give us that one or two that we need to disciple. We need to get involved with. And it's hard. So many things are comp competing for our time. Help us to follow you with genuine love and let your spirit work through us to show that this church doesn't need training wheels because we're obeying you. I thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you would stand, there is a final...